Let's pray. Father, we have much to learn about how to live before you in a way that's pleasing to you. We have much to learn about how to live in this sinful world with sinful hearts, with temptations that are constantly pressing in upon us from the outside and a factory of desires producing all manner of lust and desire from within. And somehow, Father, by your grace, we know that we are able to live faithfully before you in a manner that pleases you. But we have much to learn. But I pray, Father, that as your word speaks, as you speak to us through your word this morning, it would not be good enough for us to be taught if our hearts are unwilling also to obey. And so I pray, Father, that you would work in us both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. Thank you for this blessed of all books through which you speak to us decisively and objectively so that we will know how to please you and serve you and know the joy of walking with our Savior. We give you praise for it now and what you'll do in us because of it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles this morning to, I love saying this, I've been wanting to say this for a long time, Hebrews chapter 11. <laughs> Woohoo! he's right. Hebrews chapter 11. This morning I'd like to speak to you about hope. Because we live in a world where so many people, even good Christians, give external evidence of being happy, but deep inside are hopeless. I love history. I love to teach history. I love to read about history. I teach history to teenagers here in this church and have for a number of years. I was reading about um, when the Black Plague was sweeping through Europe this week. Some interesting things came out of that that I didn't know before. Um, one of them, I've taught my class in the past, is uh, they would, they, the, the evidence that they were ill was that they would have a sore, a boil that would come up. You know what they called that boil? This is going to ruin it for some of you mothers, but they called it a boo-boo. <laughs> That's where that term comes from. So now you've learned some history. Secondly, I discovered that the way some people would deal with the outbreak of plague in their village is that they would, they would gather together and go into what they called a dancing mania, where they would begin dancing and singing and circling almost aimlessly, like, like a rat in a, in a treadmill. They were just so hopeless that all they could do was dance and sing, hoping to cover up the reality that was upon them, that they were all going to die. And I think that that's a very graphic illustration of what our society is like. We have our entertainment, we have all of the stuff, we have the money, we have the freedoms, and all of that, and we throw ourselves into it. If we get into the car after having a problem with our wife or our children or someone at work, we don't have to think about it. We just turn on Christian radio and let them do the thinking for us. And we rejoice and we're glad as, a, as kind of a facade, but inside many are hopeless. 
And the reason that many are hopeless is largely because they have not discovered anything in this world that is strong enough to keep them secure against the difficulties and uncertainties of life. And as a result, many drift from philosophy to philosophy, from experience to experience, from gimmick to gimmick, from program to program, looking for that elusive anchor for their soul. Let me give you some examples. Sally thought that life would take on meaning and security if she could just find a nice guy and get married. But then, not long after the wedding, her Prince Charming turned out to be a real toad. He's not the Christian man she thought he would be. He doesn't cherish her above all else, the way she dreamed, the way he promised. Within a few years, he finds himself someone else that he likes better files for divorce. Common scenario, even in the church. Suddenly she feels adrift and alone. Where does, where does Sally turn for hope now? Bob is a guy who knows the Lord, has married a godly girl, has three beautiful children. He didn't know what he wanted to do when he got out of college, but he landed a good job and unexpectedly got promoted several times until he was able to provide for his family in a way that he never dreamed he would. And then one day his boss comes into his office and tells him that his particular position has been terminated. The company has no more need for him. He's suddenly out of a job with no immediate prospects for employment. How's he going to pay for the mortgage? How's he going to feed his family? What's truly amazing to his colleagues, however, is that Bob never seemed terribly upset by the news. To the contrary, his demeanor seems to remain joyful and steady through the whole ordeal. Where does that kind of hope come from? Harold and Martha are a couple of faithful saints married since shortly after high school have finally reached retirement. They did a great job raising their kids and serving their church the past four decades of their lives and have planned to spend their golden years on the mission field. Suddenly, however, Martha discovers a lump. It's cancer. The doctor says the prospects don't look good. But it's amazing, though, that even after hearing this dreadful news, these two senior saints seem almost more happy and more joyful than they ever were before. Where do they get that kind of hope? I paint these scenarios for you this morning because I know that most of us are going to have a really hard time identifying with the people that are receiving the book of Hebrews who are face, had, had previously faced a wave of persecution and were about to face another, history would prove, a more severe wave of persecution right around the bend. If they were going to stand against the uh, the, the, the tide of the next persecution and do it faithfully, their lives would need to be filled with the same kind of hope that we need when we face the next unexpected trial, unexpected disappointment. But where does that kind of rock-solid hope come from? We come this morning to one of the most cherished portions of Scripture in the entire Bible. Through the centuries, chapter 11 of Hebrews has been given such titles as the honor roll of the saints. It's been called the faith chapter. It's been called the Westminster Abbey of Scripture. It's been called the Hall of Faith, just to name a few. 
In a book where a significant amount of teaching is difficult to follow, and sometimes equally difficult to understand, chapter 11 shines forth as a kind of brilliant narrative that any child can understand, but one that is so full of a kind of hope that every mature believer desperately needs. We need this chapter. I need this chapter. I need this chapter every day of my life. To the question, where does real hope come from? Chapter 11 says, verse 1, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The author of Hebrews would have us understand where hope comes from. Where does true hope come from when you've been thrown into some unexpected disappointment or disaster or painful trial? It comes from rock-solid faith in God's unshakable and unalterable promises. The author of Hebrews would teach us two things this morning, I think, from two verses, one of which I've already read, about faith. And the first thing is this. He wants to teach us the nature of faith. The nature of faith. It's one of the few places in the Bible where we have a theological term that is defined for us very explicitly. Now, there's a lot of confusion about faith in our culture. Would you not agree? I mean, we're told the secret to happiness and success is to have faith in ourselves or have faith in the God as we understand him. Some will say that all you need to do is think positively, believing that all is going to turn out well. They'll even use Romans chapter 8 to say all things work together for good to those who love God. And don't follow the rest of that text through to the period we find out what all things are and what the goal is to conform us to the likeness of Christ. Walt Disney Productions has always suggested that for decades they've told us that to have faith is to wish upon a star. Who knows? Maybe your fairy godmother will show up with a cricket <laughs> to help you. And you'll begin to whistle. But that kind of hope doesn't bring the kind of bedrock, solid mooring that you and I need. The inspired author tells us that true hope-inspired faith is this. It consists of two parts that are essentially synonymous. In the Greek, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and perhaps your Bible has the word and in there. There is no gar. There is no and in the, in, in the original text. It's almost as if he's using a Hebrew parallelism. He's giving us two statements that, are, that are, are meant to tell us the same thing. But for the sake of our taking it apart and putting it back together to help, be helpful, and we'll take them as two different things. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's number one. 
What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, the word assurance is hypostasis. It's a word that's not used very often in the New Testament, but it's an important one. It literally means that which stands under. It's like a firm foundation, like a slab of concrete upon which your house stands. In Hebrews 1.3, we read about Jesus these words, and you can turn there, would you? Hebrews 3, I'm sorry, Hebrews 1, verse 3. Speaking about Christ, this word is used. And the author says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his, what's the next word? Nature. And upholds all things according to his power. One text says, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his being. And so in this sense, real hope inspiring faith is the being, I think the, new, or the King James Version uses substance, it's reality. Real hope inspiring faith is the being or the substance of what is hoped for. The idea is that faith clings to what is hoped for as if it were something real and substantial, even though it is not tangible or visible. We have something that we are trusting in so much that our lives cling to it with all of our might, even though the thing we are clinging to cannot be seen. It is invisible. And that's why the world says, that's crazy. And frankly, that's why many of us struggle to be faithful. Because we don't understand that this has such practical implications for our lives. What is faith? And this all leads us to the second truth about the kind of faith that he's describing. And, and by the way, this is not meant to be a theological dissertation on the components of faith. He's dealing with a particular situation that is, what kind of faith do you need when you're facing a difficulty, a trial, persecution? Nevertheless, this applies to all faith. You must have this component. And so the second part of faith is this. It's not only the assurance of things hoped for, but the conviction of things, what's the next two words? Not seen. The word for conviction here means evidence or proof. If you look in the textual manuscripts, you'll find in in the ancient papyrus, you'll, you'll find um, examples where a trial was held and where um, a person was being convicted. And that conviction was the process of bringing about proofs that this person was guilty or innocent. It is the conviction of things that are not seen. It is the proof. And it's like this, just as physical eyesight produces conviction or evidence of visible things, like this, if I'm, if I'm walking from the back of this platform to the front of this platform, I know that I need to stop here because there is evidence 
that I will probably hurt myself if I run into this pulpit. Okay, my eyes see it, and my body responds. And so it is with faith. Faith is the spiritual organ in the soul of the believer by which we are enabled to see realities that are invisible. And not only to see them, but to embrace them and cling to them with all of our might. I mean, that's why Paul lived the kind of life he did, right? That's why Paul was always in danger of being stoned, of being arrested, of being killed, of being flogged and beaten with rods and shipwrecked and beheaded. Why did he do that? How in the world could the Apostle Paul live like that? I mean, it was dangerous for him to go outside. I mean, just stay asleep. Just sleep in, Paul. Don't go out there. It's dangerous for you. And he didn't care if he had to be lowered down in a basket. Why? What motivated him to do that? This is what motivated him. His faith, his faith was of such a kind that all of us should have. His faith was of such a... Um, had such veracity and was so clear to him that... Whatever God had promised to him, he had a single vision and could see it and cling to it, knowing that, this is why he would say things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Wait, what, what about the gain part? What, what's gain? Tell me about the gain, Paul. Oh, we don't have time. But all of the promises that God has made for me, I believe them. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that He is able to keep all that I have committed to Him against that day. That's why I live like this. Paul was a man of faith. This kind of faith. He didn't need physical proof. He never saw the empty tomb. He never saw Jesus until on the Damascus Road. Jesus appeared to him. He did have a sighting. He did have some conversation with the resurrected Lord. But beyond that, we have no record that Paul had any verifiable evidence in terms of what he could see. He simply had to do what we have to do. Faith does not come by seeing, but by believing. And he is defining for us here what faith is. And he gives us a lot of examples in chapter 11. But a great example is uh, in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 11, the, the example of Moses. Hebrews 11, 26 and 27, he says this. Well, start with um, verse 23. For by faith, Moses, when he when was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the, sons of Pharaoh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, notice, he made a choice. He made a hard choice. He made a choice that caused him pain. He made a, cor a, a choice that seemed outwardly to be detrimental to himself. Why did he do that? Choosing rather to endure the, the ill treatment with the people of God 
than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now listen, considering or believing or reckoning the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For, listen, he was looking, insert, seeing the, what's the last word? Reward. What kind of hope filled Moses' heart? What kind of hope could be so powerful that he would give up all of the wealth and opportunity and power and glory of being the king's adopted son and choose rather to be a slave? That hope only comes from one place. You must believe something that God has said and promised that you cannot see. You must have in your heart, in your mind, the promise of God. Know it. You want name it, claim it? This is name it, claim it. You name a promise of God and you say, God, I will live according to that promise. Though it cost me my life. Because to die is gain. I believe it. In other words, real hope-inspiring faith is the kind of faith that causes us to make decisions under pressure of trials and temptations that can only be explained as clinging to invisible realities that God has revealed. That's faith. Why would Jesus, who had all power to do as he pleased with the powers of heaven and the people of earth, Jesus, who in uh, Daniel 7 was called the Son of Man, who had been given all sovereign authority over all things on earth and in heaven. Why would he allow a small group of puny Roman soldiers, that wasn't an ethnic slur, by the way, but smallness in compared to his greatness, why would he allow a a small group of puny men to come and take him prisoner to falsely accuse him, to trump up charges against him, to sentence him for a crime he never committed, to nail him to a cross and to die. How in the world and why did Jesus permit that? Why would he allow that? Answer, he was clinging to something that no one could see. He was clinging to invisible realities that God had revealed. His complete faith was that his father would do exactly as he promised. And that's why in the garden he cried out, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus didn't enjoy the experience of the cross. In fact, when we get to Hebrews 12, we will read this that he endured the cross, that he despised the shame. And then why did he do it? He did it, he did it because he knew something that no one else believed, though he explained it to his disciples over and over again. They couldn't comprehend it. Namely, this, that God so loved the world that he gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him 
to not perish, but have everlasting life. The Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give His, what? Life. A ransom for many. God the Father had promised His Son that He would raise Him up from the dead and save a world of sinners from eternal destruction by His perfect high priestly sacrifice. And Jesus believed the Father's promise so deeply, it was a reality to Him even before it occurred, and it was such a reality that He threw His life against it. And that kind of faith is the kind of faith that the author is speaking of. And that's why after going through this whole list of saints who did that, he calls us in chapter 12 to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the ultimate example of this kind of faith. And so what is faith? Faith is the substance and the proof of things. What are the next two words? Faith is the substance and the proof of things hoped for. Now, what are the things hoped for? What are the things hoped for? This is not, gee, I hope everything turns out okay. Mom's just gone to the hospital again. Hope it all turns out okay. I'm going to have tests done. I'm going to have another scan. Boy, I'm believing. I'm believing everything's going to be all right. I hope the test comes back negative. I hope I can find a new job. Is it that kind of hope? I hope I get a good grade. Right, kids? College students. No, the context of the book of Hebrews says that the things that are hoped for are the things that God has promised. You might hope for a brand new car. Keep on hoping. Keep hope alive. <laughs> but if God hadn't promised it, there isn't any guarantee. He might give you a car. Gave my son a car after the tornado. He called us. We were, my wife and I were in Indiana at a conference, and he called up and said, Josh, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, I've been praying that God would, would give me a new car because the tornado destroyed my car that I loaned to him. And, you know, after the tornado, I saw it on CNN upside down with a truck on it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, right? So the Lord gave him that car the Lord took it away. He said, well, I have to live off campus now. I need another car. So what are you doing? He said, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm moving your cars out of the driveway. I'm praying God would drop one out of heaven. I'm just making sure he's got a place to land it. And we laughed, and we said, that's, that's funny. Please do make sure our cars are out of the driveway. We saw what happened last time. The Lord started throwing cars around. And you know what? He got back to school. We let him make this decision. He was going to live off campus. It's going to be a 15-mile drive. He didn't have any transportation. He said his new roommate's girlfriend was going to take him. Okay, right. That sounds real secure. It's your decision, son. Doesn't sound like it's sin. Whatever you want to do, 
This is you and God. This is why you're in college. It's you and God. You pray about it. You make a decision that you think would please the Lord, and I'll stand behind you 100%. Call back and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this move. I'm going to live off campus. I'm going to let the Lord figure out the transportation. And we know we at least got a few days here where someone's going to drive us. About, what was it, two days, three days later, he calls back. He said, guess what? I have a car. I said, where'd you get a car from? He said, well, the Texas admissions representative, young kid, called me up and said, Josh, I heard yours was one of the other thousand cars that were destroyed on campus. He said, I got thinking about you and realized I have a car that I'm not using. And my dad got me a new one or whatever, and it's just sitting here. It runs, needs a little work. You want it? He said, are you kidding? I've been praying for this. And a week ago, he drove home in a new, very used car. And he was rejoicing, praising God. And I said, son, this one's yours. You made the call. You trusted God. If I had made the call, you wouldn't have ever moved to that place. You would have missed this completely. But you trusted the Lord to take care of your needs as He has promised. And you have a car. Now getting a car is not something necessarily, you know, name it, claim it, the wrong kind of name it, claim it, right? But Lord, you promised to meet my needs. I have no idea how you're going to do that. But I trust you. That's what Moses did. Faith is the substance and the proof of things hoped for. Now, what are those things? Well, here they are, just a few. What do we hope for? What has God promised? We hope for the return of Christ because God has promised it. Paul says, he calls it the blessed hope or the happy hope. Blessed. Oh, how happy are those, etc., etc. Same word. Blessed Our happy hope, the thing that gives us joy in this life, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how how fierce the storm in our lives, we are hopeful. Why? Because we believe something that we cannot see, and that is Jesus is returning. He's coming back. In Titus 2 13, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We hope for that. I've been to the third world. I've been to Haiti a couple times. I've been in the jungles of Mexico. I've been 12 time zones away deep into the tundra of um, Kazakhstan. And I've seen poor saints who are the most joyful people I ever met. You know why they were joyful? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And the glory that God has prepared for me so far outweighs this temporary suffering. What else do we hope for? We hope for the resurrection. The resurrection of our bodies. As Peter says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does that mean? Because he is raised, we will be raised. Now we are free from the power of sin. Then we will be free from the presence of sin. We hope 
What else do we hope for? We hope for glorification because as John wrote, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone, listen, everyone who has this hope does something. What does he do? He purifies himself. It means he works on his own heart, folks. It means we're diligent. We labor, striving to purify our hearts by God's grace and power. What else do we hope for? Number four, we hope for our future reward. We hope for a future reward, as Paul Paul wrote, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen. Hear that? What are we looking at? Not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are what? Temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know, an old, an old saint is lying in a nursing home month after month, year after year. And when you go to see her, to minister to her, you come away feeling like, man, she blesses me every time I come. How can she have such joy? It's because she knows something. She's clinging to something. She's clinging to something that it's hard for the rest of us to see because we don't believe it the way she believes it. What does she believe? Every day that I suffer, every day that I suffer is producing for me an eternal weight. Is this suffering weighty? Weightier than I've ever felt it. But it just means... More treasure in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where thief cannot steal and where moth cannot destroy, where rust cannot corrupt. That's what she's doing. There have been women in this congregation who I stood next to week after week after week looking for his appearing, their personal Removal into the presence of God. And they were filled with joy so that the nurses kind of argued who was going to get to minister or to serve them today. Where does that hope come from? It comes from faith. It comes from the assurance of things that were promised. That's why we hope for them. The conviction of things that are not seen. The promise. And we hope for a future reward. We hope for the resurrection. We hope for the return of Christ. We hope for glorification. We hope for a thousand things that God has promised. How can some people remain so hopeful, so joyful in the midst of severe trial? It's because what, listen, what rules their heart is not the whimsical wish upon a star or blind faith that everything's going to turn out all right. It doesn't always turn out all right. I praise God that my mother was healed of cancer. I've never seen that before in all my life. And she's in the hospital right now because they just put her back together. The doctor can't even explain it. He said, I looked in there to see for myself whether there was any cancer. And it's gone. That's this week. She's there right now. That's why she's not here this morning. And I said, yeah, isn't it amazing that 
that the cancer disappeared. And he said, yeah, we're kind of all scratching our heads about that. I'm not. She's not. But you know what? God doesn't always heal. And we don't know why he did this time. Just in the mystery of his sovereignty, he chose to be especially kind and gracious to my mother. He didn't have to, and she didn't deserve it. And I wouldn't either if I were in her position. I know what I deserve. I know whom I have believed, and I know what I deserve. And you know what? Most of the time it doesn't work out that way. God doesn't have to heal, and he very seldom does. And so it was in the ministry of Jesus, right? He didn't heal everybody. Remember when he went into the pool of um, Siloam, I think, and all the people, all the paralytics and blind and lame were laying all around, and they had heard this story that if the water gets agitated, whoever gets in first, he's going to be healed. And Jesus went in there. How many people did he walk past and step over before he got to the one man that he had that conversation with? And said, get up, take up your bed and go home. He had a purpose for that. He had a purpose for that that was just as holy as his purpose for stepping over all the other people. And we don't know what his purposes were for those other people. Some he allows to suffer. Some he heals. And some days he encourages your heart. Some days he spanks you, scourges you, Hebrews 12 says. And all of it is by design. He's causing all things to work together for good. What is that good? To conform us to the image of his son. And we don't know how he's going to do it in the next day, at the next moment, or the next test. But we know this, that he will be faithful to his promises. They are invisible, but we cling to them with all of our heart. If you've ever read the story of Adoniram Judson, then you know how much he suffered as he sought to bring the lost souls of China to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At one point he was arrested. The political situation changed. Anyone who was an outsider was arrested, and of course he was an outsider. Judson was an American. He was arrested. He was abused. He was beaten. Often the Chinese military in the prison would hang him and the other prisoners upside down by bamboo poles. They would leave them there all night with their bare feet exposed, pointed upward, and in the night, the mosquitoes would come out, and they would come to the prison and feast on the upward-turned feet of the prisoners. They wanted to make sure these guys didn't run away. And so tender and sore and blistered were the feet of these men that it rendered them nearly incapable of walking, let alone escaping. Nevertheless, his hope never died. At one point, he wrote these words, The future is as bright as the promises of God. And God raised him up. And his ministry there, though it was in the 1800s, still thrives in China. That's real hope. That's real hope-inspiring faith. The first thing the author would have us know is this, that the nature of faith is this, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But secondly, he would have us know the necessity of faith. Verse 2, very briefly, 
for by it men of old gained approval. The only way sinful men and women like you and me find approval from God is by faith. This kind of faith. This kind of faith that governs, that rules our hearts when it's time to make a decision whether to snap back at our wife in anger or to respond in a gracious way. Whether it's to take him on so as to take control or is to submit yourself to your husband with love and respect. God doesn't put a stamp of approval on our lives because we've been good. There is none righteous. No, not even one. He doesn't accept us for being religious or for reading our Bible or for going to church. The only grounds upon which God approves of us is on the grounds of faith. But even here we need to understand that faith is not simply saying, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. The demons believe that and they tremble. No, true faith is when by the power of God's grace a sinner turns away from their own self-effort. They they turn away from their own self-righteousness and he throws himself completely upon God's promise that he justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies all who cling to the righteousness of Christ alone for eternal life. He's like the publican, the tax collector in the temple. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. I tithe on my mint and my dill and et cetera, et cetera. And he says, Jesus telling the story, says, but the publican would not even lift his eyes toward heaven, but looking down and beating his chest. said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Interesting phrase there he uses. There's another story right near that where the blind man, Bartimaeus, cries out to Jesus and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's an entirely different word than what the publican says. The publican uses a word that we find in Hebrews on a couple of occasions. It's translated propitiation. You know why he's in the temple? He's in the temple to pray. But you know what? There was a, there was a timing of prayer in the temple. The men would all gather at the temple Uh, for the morning and the evening sacrifice. And after the sacrifice, there was the pouring out of incense. The smoke went up, and it was kind of the signal, like a smoke signal to the crowd, it's time to pray. And here's what the publican was saying. God, make this offering the propitiation for my sin. God, may his death be counted as my death. God, may His sacrifice be counted as payment for my sin. God, be propitiated for me. Have mercy on me, the sinner. As if the other two or three thousand men standing around Him didn't even exist. That's faith. Salvation happens when a man or woman in faith clings to what is hoped for as if it were something real and substantial even though it's something that is not yet visible. As the author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 10, verse 32, 
He says, my righteous one shall live by faith. And that's the way it is for all who hate, who hope to give uh, to gain approval from God. The rest of chapter 11 is simply a list of narrative examples of men and women whose lives were undergirded by this kind of hope-inspiring faith. He begins with Abel, whose sacrifice was better than his brother's. Therefore, it was received by God. He then tells us of Enoch, who walked with God, and God took him home to heaven, apart from the normal recourse of death. Then he tells us of Noah, who built an ark by faith, believing Something he'd never seen before. It's going to rain. What's rain? Trust me on this. It's going to rain. Water's going to come out of the sky. And the text clearly says it had never rained before. He took it on faith. And then Abraham, who received a son and a nation by faith. Isaac, Jacob. And then Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David. All these, verse 39, gained approval through their faith. A faith that empowered them to make very difficult decisions when the chips were down that were unreasonable to the natural eye but made perfect sense to those who clung to the promises of God by faith. Why else would Abraham take his son, Isaac, his only son, Isaac, up to Mount Moriah, take out a knife... And be ready to plunge it into his chest if he did not believe in realities that were promised but could not be seen. The author of Hebrews says he believed because God said he would use Isaac. I will make of him a great nation out of your loins will come my people. The author of Hebrews says Abraham must have believed that God would raise him from the dead because he would not go back. On his word. Beloved, when the next trial hits your life, when the next disappointment, I guarantee that the object of your faith will be made evident by the way you respond. We could say it this way whatever rules your heart is going to become evident by the way you respond. Men, the next time your wife says something that cuts against your grain, how are you going to respond? Will it become evident that your hope is in the promises of God in Christ or that your hope is that someday your wife is going to change into someone who will be respectful to your wishes and joyfully do whatever you say? Ladies, the next time your husband suggests that you do something that you don't particularly like or agree with or or that isn't according to your preference, how will you respond? Will it become evident that your hope is in God's promise to bless your gentle and respectful spirit? Or that your hope is that someday my husband is going to get, or God perhaps is going to get this man to do what I like, to think as I like, to give me what I like. You see, the reality of our faith is tested Most often, not in the big decisions of life, but in all the little mundane decisions that we make every day. Living by faith is not something that we're going to do when we get old and we have to make hard decisions about hospitalization and and nursing care and all that stuff. No. Your faith is going to be tested when you leave this room and try to pile all of those children in your car without complaining. 
This is where we live. And this is where our faith is proved. It's either going to be proved there or it will be proved shortly thereafter when you realize that you just blew it. And realizing that you just sinned against your spouse or your children or someone else in the church, you make it right. You ask them to forgive you. Obeying the command of God for His glory and your own joy. Where will Sally find hope now that her toad of a husband has left her? She can find it, if she will, in the eternal promises of God. Why does Bob seem so joyful even though he's lost his job and he has a mortgage and children and wife to care for? Because his faith is not in his career. But in the God who promised, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. How can Harold and Martha face the prospect of an incurable cancer with peace and confidence? Because their hope is not in a healthy body. But in him who promised, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me, listen, will never die. In a sense, the whole of Scripture has been given to bring us to this point. Paul says in Romans 15:4, these words, listen carefully, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that, here comes the purpose, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You want to build this kind of hope in your life? You say, how do I do that? Let me tell you three things to do. It's not an exhaustive list, but maybe something to get you started. Number one, take Scripture memory more seriously than you have. Take Scripture memory more seriously. Memorize the promises of God that are most relevant to your situation in life. Find them. They're easily found. They're in the book that's sitting in your lap right now. Get online. Go, if you need help, go to our website. There's a little... Bible study tool right there. Just start plugging in words and finding promises. They're all over the place. Memorize them. Second, become an encourager of other strugglers with the promises of God. Write notes. Send emails. Leave messages with the promises of God all over them. Seek ways to bless other people. You know someone struggling? Send them scripture. And write it with your own hand or leave it in your own voice. Remind them of the promises of God, not in a cavalier way. Don't say, well, hey, brother, all things work together for good. Sorry about the cancer. <sighs> Don't be insensitive. But you could say, brother, I know you're struggling. And I know it's hard to believe sometimes, but God has promised somehow in the mystery of his sovereign will he is working this together for your good to conform you to the image of your son. I'm praying that you won't waste your cancer. I'm praying that you won't waste the death of your loved one. I'm praying that you won't waste this opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of Christ by the way you respond. I love you. I'm praying for you. See, Make the promises of God the fuel of your worshipful prayer. 
You want fellowship with God? Take his promises to your prayer closet and pour them out before him. As if you were David reminding God who never forgets. It's appropriate. Not that God needs reminder, but I need to be reminded. Pour out the promises of God as the fuel of your worshipful prayers. You're probably thinking of two or three other ways. It's great. Write them down and do it. Beloved, true faith in God's promises destroys hopelessness and fills our souls with absolute certainty and assurance. That's where real hope comes from. Let's pray. Lord, we've been studying in your word how to have an unshakable faith. And here we see the reason why we need it. We need an unshakable faith so that we will have a bedrock, immovable hope and trust in all of your promises to be gracious to us in the next moment, believing with all of our hearts that you will not ever allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but will with the temptation provide also a way of escape. A thousand other promises, Lord, you've given And faithfulness will be determined by whether or not we live accordingly. Oh, Father, may you be glorified in us and be pleased by our lives this week as we seek to apply this truth to the way that we relate to one another, the way we live before the world, the way we raise our children, the way we communicate, the way we allow our hearts to think, the way we speak to our hearts rather listening to them, the way we share the gospel the way we serve your people in the church. Oh, Father, that we would be found faithful in your sight. This is our prayer. Fill us with hope. Fill us with your promises that our faith would be strong and we would live to the glory of your name. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.